So here we go. So my theme is set your sails for joy. Um, and I'd like to challenge you to keep an eternal perspective. And I think that really helps when it comes to living everyday life. And then as you listen closely and enjoy the words of God's company, make it Let, allow it to bring about a happy disposition in you. Um, it does to me, and I can't think of anything that would please me more that you would give that kind of access to the word. So today's me- message is about joy. <laughs> and um, just our vocation, my hobbies and mine, is among the most serious of all professions. And uh, as a minister of the gospel and as a senior pastor, the concerns we deal with are eternal in dimension. And a week doesn't pass without our hearing of or dealing with life in the raw. You know, marriages are breaking, homes are splitting, people are hurting, jobs are dissolving, addictions of every description are rampant. Um, People are desperate, there's no hope committing suicide, it just means nothing. What am I here for? And you know what is so sad is that the suicide issues are, are, are reaching younger and younger generations. And that is so disturbing to me because um, I don't recall that kind of stuff when I was in my teens or adolescent. I mean, we have kids from standard three, four, and five even committing suicide. What the heck? Where? How? What? But there's so much heartache. And needs are enormous. They're endless and they're heart-rending. And the most natural thing for us to do would be to allow all of that to rob us of our joy. But you know the word whispers very differently. You can faithfully serve me, but you can still be yourself. My servant doesn't require you to be, to stop laughing or to have joy. So with this, I'd like to encourage you to cultivate a very simple faith lifestyle. So it's not denying that tough times are upon us. That's no question. And the issues we face are both serious and real. But really, are they so intense? Are they so all-important, so serious and all-consuming that every expression of joy should be eclipsed? Hopefully, as a result of keeping company with God's Word, you will gain or access a new perspective on how to view these harsh days. And you will find yourself changing. And how will you know this? And there's one telltale sign. You will begin to experience joy and love again. I know of no greater need today than the need for joy. Unexplainable joy, contagious joy, outrageous joy. And when that kind of joy comes aboard our ship of life, it brings good things with it, like enthusiasm for life, determination to hang in there, and a strong desire to be of encouragement to others. And such qualities make our voyage bearable when we hit the open seas 
and encounter high waves of hardship that tend to demoralize and paralyze. There's nothing better than a joyful attitude when we face the challenges life throws at us. Someone once asked Mother Teresa what the job description was for anyone who might wish to work alongside her in the grimy streets and narrow alleys of Calcutta. Without hesitation, she mentioned only two things. The desire to work hard and a joyful attitude. I think that both of those qualities are quite rare, but the second is much rarer than the first. Diligence may be difficult to find, but compared to an attitude of genuine joy, genuine joy, hard work is actually commonplace. If you just look around, there's bad news, long faces, heavy hearts are everywhere. And then much of today's popular music, which many consider a voice for the nation's conscience, promotes misery, sorrow, despair. And if sex and violence are not the pulsating themes of a new form, some expression of unhappiness is. The news also thrives on tragedies and calamities, lost jobs and horrible accidents. Even the weather reports give their primary attention to storms, droughts, fires and blizzards. Um, Tomorrow is usually partly cloudy with a 20% chance of rain. It's never mostly clear with an 80% chance of sunshine. (laughs) Okay. And joy. We understand from Scripture is the gigantic secret of a Christian. Um, But it's often conspicuous by its absence. And it's often in church as well, in the members that come. And the one place on earth where life's burdens should be lighter, where faces should reflect genuine enthusiasm, and where attitudes should be uplifting and positive, is the church. Because we have the word. Um, A person wrote to a friend and said this, Humor has done a lot to help me in my spiritual life. How could I have reared 12 children starting at age 32 and not have had a sense of humor? I got married at age 31. I didn't worry about getting married. I left my future in God's hands. But I must tell you, every night I hung a pair of men's pants on my bed and knelt down to pray this prayer. Father in heaven, hear my prayer and grant it if you can. I've hung a pair of trousers here. Please fill them with a man. (laughs) Okay. Perhaps you find yourself among those in the if-only group. You say you would have joy if only you had more money, if only you had more talent or were more beautiful, if only you could find a more fulfilling job. Let's challenge those excuses. Just as 
More money never made anyone generous, and more talent never made anyone more grateful. More anything never made anyone joyful. Um, I'd like to quote Jane Canfield. She says this, The happiest people are rarely the richest or the most beautiful or even the most talented. Happy people do not depend on excitement and funds supplied by externals. They enjoy the the fundamental, often very simple things in life. They waste no time thinking other pastures are greener. They do not yearn for yesterday or tomorrow. They savor the moment, glad to be alive, enjoying their work, their families, the good things around them. They are adaptable. They can bend with the wind, adjust to the changes in their times, enjoy the contests of life, and feel in harmony with the world. Their eyes are turned outward. They are aware. They are compassionate. They have the capacity to love. And really, without exception, people who consistently laugh do so in spite of, seldom because of anything. They pursue fun rather than wait for it to knock on their back door. There once lived a man who became a Christian as an adult and left the security and popularity of of his former career as an official religious leader to follow Christ. The persecution that became his companion throughout the remaining years of his life was just the beginning of his woes. Misunderstood, misrepresented, and maligned though he was, he pressed on joyfully. On top of that, he suffered from a physical ailment so severe he called it a thorn in the flesh. By now you know I'm referring to Saul of Tarsus, called Paul. Though not one to dwell on his own difficulties or ailments, he did take the time to record a partial list of them in his second letter to his friends in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through to 28. And uh, compared to his first contemporaries, he was in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I've spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers amongst false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Although that was enough hardship for several people, Paul's journey got even more rugged as time passed. And finally, he was arrested and placed under the constant guard of Roman soldiers to whom he was chained for two years. While he was allowed to remain in his own rented quarters, the restrictions must have been incredibly irksome to a man who had grown accustomed to traveling and to the freedom of setting his own agenda. 
Yet not once do we read of losing his patience and throwing a fit. On the contrary, he saw his circumstances as an opportunity to make Christ known as he made the best of the situation. And Paul wrote several letters during the years of house arrest, one of which was addressed to a group of Christians living in Philippi. And it's actually remarkable by its recurring theme, joy, written by a man who had known excruciating hardship and pain, living in a restricted setting, chained to a Roman soldier. Attitudes of joy and contentment are woven through the tapestry of these 104 verses. Rather than wallowing in self-pity or calling on his friends to help him escape, or at least find relief from these restrictions, Paul sent a surprisingly light-hearted message. And to top that, time and again, he urges the Philippians and his readers to be people of joy. And that same theme resurfaces in each of the four chapters. When Paul prayed for the Philippians, he smiled. He says in Philippians 1, 3, 3 to 4, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for you all. And when he compared staying on earth to leaving and, and, giving, and going to be with Jesus, he was joyful. Philippians 1, 21 through to 25, he says this, For me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. For your progress and joy in the faith, we are here for one another. It's awesome. And when he encouraged them to work together in harmony, his own joy intensified as he actually envisioned that happening. In Philippians 2, 1 through to 2, he says this, If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. When he mentioned sending a friend to them, he urged them to receive the man joyfully. Philippians 2, 25 through to 29. But I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you'd heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So Paul was not without sorrow. <laughs> but in the midst of all that, he had the joy. So he had an eternal perspective. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, in order that when you see him again, you may 
Rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Therefore receive him in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard. When Paul communicated the core of what he wanted them to hear from him, he was full of joy. Philippians 3 verse 1 says this, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is actually a safeguard for you. In Philippians 4 verse 4 it says, When he was drawing his letter to a close, he returned to the same message of joy. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I will say, Rejoice. And then finally, when Paul called to mind their concern for his welfare, the joy about which he writes is one of the most absolute upbeat passages found in Scripture. And um, it's Philippians 14 through to 19. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled with, being filled and going hungry. Both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself. Listen to this. I seek for the profit which it which increases to your account. In other words, he's always there for the benefit of others. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, which is a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. The confidence... My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Why could he say that? Because he experienced it. Now, I strongly suspect that the Philippians' joy increased, and this led to all the more appreciated as they remembered Paul's circumstances. If he, in that irritating, confining situation, could be so positive so full of encouragement, so absolutely affirming, certainly those living in freedom could be joyful. Life's joy seekers are many, and you will need to get rid of them if you hope to attain the kind of joy described by Paul. And one of the ringleaders you'll need to battle with sooner rather than later is the sneaky thief who slides into your thoughts and reminds you of something from the past that demoralizes you, even though it is over and done with and fully forgiven, or conjures up fears regarding something in the future, even though that frightening something may never happen. And as we attempt to probe the mind of Paul, trying to find some common denominator 
some secret clue to his joy, we have to conclude that it was his confidence in God. To Paul, God was in full control of everything. Everything. If hardship came, God permitted it. If pain dogged his steps, it was only because God allowed it. If he was under arrest, God still remained sovereign, director of his life. If there seemed to be no way out, God knew he was pressed. If things broke open and all pressure was relieved, God was responsible. So the point. God is no distant deity, but a constant reality, a very present help whenever needs occur. So live like it. Paul did. And while he lived, he drained every drop of joy out of every day that passed. The letter to the Philippians says so. So we realize that joy is a choice. And in John 15 verse 11, Jesus gave us his truth so that his joy might be in us. His truth gives us joy to be in us. And when that joy is in us, our joy is full. It's complete. Isn't that awesome? Um, so it's a matter of attitude that stems from one's confidence in God, that he is at work, and we were singing it earlier on, he's always at work, even when I don't see it, even when I don't feel it, he's always at work, that he is in full control, that he is in the midst of whatever, whatever is happening, has happened and actually will happen. Either we fix our minds on that and determine to rejoice, or we wail and we whine our way through life, complaining that we never got a fair deal. We are the ones who consciously determine which way we shall go. Paraphrasing the lines of a poet, one ship sails east, one ship sails west, regardless of how the wind blows. It is the set of the sail and not the gale that determines the way we go. Rejoicing in one's way, on one's way through life depends on nothing external. Regardless of how severely the winds of adversity may blow, we set our sails towards joy. And it comes from deep within. It's a quiet confidence. Not in the long life of a husband or a wife. Not in the fact that external situations always will be calm, peaceful and easy. But in God who is always at work, who is in control, who is causing all things to result in his greater glory. And when you and I focus on that, we too discover we can actually rejoice again. Everything is determined by how we set our sail. And in this magnificent though brief letter to the Philippians, instead of introducing themselves as Paul and Timothy, super leaders, hotshots, celebrities, the Apostle Paul writes, Paul and Timothy, servants. The Greek term translated servant means many things. And I'd like to give you some. One bound to another by constraining love, one in such close relationship to another that only death could break the bond, 
one whose will is swallowed up in the sweet will of God, one who serves another, who serves Christ, with reckless abandon, not regarding his or her own interests. And these words actually defined Paul and Timothy. Interesting, this is a letter from servants to saints. Paul and Timothy to all the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi, including overseers and deacons. That's verse, chapter 1, verse 1. And today we might say to pastors and deacons or to elders and deacons or assistants. The Greek term translated saint is from a word that means set apart and consecrated for the purpose of God's service. You are set apart, consecrated for the purpose of God's service. That's why you are a saint. When you were born into God's family by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you got that title. You were set apart for God's special purpose. So consecration is at the core of the word. And what does Paul offer these saints? Grace. Peace. Grace is something that comes to us which we actually don't deserve. Peace is something that happens within us which is not in any way affected by our external circumstances. So with grace from above and peace within, who wouldn't have cause for rejoicing? I'd just like to explain something about peace. In its earliest form, the word peace meant to bind together and came to include the whole idea of being bound so closely together with someone or something that a harmony resulted. <clears throat> Paul set his sails on the very things he offered his friends in Philippi, grace and peace. And then what was it about those folks in Philippi that brought Paul so much joy? First, this is when you study the scriptures, you pick things up and there's, there's such depth. He had happy memories of the people. You see, these are all clues as to how to get joy. In um, Philippians 1, 3 to 5, it says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the very first day until now. His memory of them made him smile. Meaning what? He had no regrets. He nursed no ill feelings. He struggled through no unresolved conflicts. And when he looked back over a full decade and thought of the Philippians, he had no sad or disappointing mental images, remembrances. He could not remember one whom he would accuse or feel ill toward, not even those who threw him in prison or those who stood in a courtroom and made accusations against him. He entertained only good memories of Philippi. Positive memories make life so much lighter. <clears throat> 
And secondly, he was joyful because he had firm confidence in God. Philippians 1, 6 through to 7. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you're all partakers of grace with me. Paul's confidence in God was a settled fact. He knew that God was at work and in control. He was confident that God was bringing about whatever was happening for God's greater glory. And when we possess that kind of confidence, we have a solid platform built within us. It's a solid platform upon which joy can rest. <clears throat> Look at the words began and perfect. And they represent opposite ends, or if you will, the book ends of life. The one who started, began, a good work in your life will complete, perfect it. And that's what gives us confidence. That's what helps us have joy. So I'd like you to travel back in your mind to the cross where Christ was crucified. See this Savior lifted up, paying for the sins of the world. Listen to his words. One of the last words of Christ our Lord cried out was, Tetelestai. Translated, it means, it is finished. Telos is the root Greek term, the same root of the word translated perfect. So Paul was saying, he who began a good work in you when you were converted ten years ago, Philippians, will bring it to completion. It will be finished. Jesus will see to it, and that gives me joy. So let's think of our own world. You may have a good friend who's not walking as close to the Lord as he or she once was. Rest in the confidence that God has neither lost interest nor lost control. He's not looking the other way. <clears throat> the person you're concerned about, maybe your son, your daughter. Find encouragement in this firm confidence. The one who began a good work in your boy or girl <clears throat> will bring it to completion. He will finish the task. That firm confidence in God's finishing what he started will bring back your joy. Um, and I've mentioned joy stealers. Dion mentioned the joy stealers. So I'd like to identify three of these thieves at work today. All three, by the way, can be resisted by firm confidence, the kind of confidence we've been thinking about. The first joy stealer is worry. The second is stress. The third is fear. Worry is an inordinate anxiety about something that may or may not occur. And worry eats away at joy like slow-working acid while we are waiting for the outcome. What is being worried about usually does not even occur. Stress is a little more acute than worry. Stress is intense strain over a situation we cannot change or we cannot control. And instead of releasing it to God, we churn over it. And it's in that restless churning that our stress is intensified. 
Usually the thing that plagues us is not as severe as we make it out to be. Fear, on the other hand, is different from worry and stress. It's a dreadful uneasiness over the presence of danger, evil, or pain. So how do we withstand these joy stealers? This is what I do. First, I remind myself in the morning and during the course of the day, God, you are at work and you are in control. And, Lord God, you know this is happening. You were there at the beginning and you will bring everything that occurs to a conclusion that results in the greater glory in the end. And then, of course, I relax. It's in God's hands. <clears throat> the happiest people that I know are the ones that have learned how to hold everything loosely and have given the worrisome, stressful, fearful details of their life into God's keeping. First, Paul had happy memories of the people. Second, he had firm confidence in God. And third, Paul felt a warm affection towards his fellow believers. In Philippians 1, 7 through to 8, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The term Paul uses for affection is literally the Greek word for bowels. In the first century, it was believed that the intestines, the stomach, the liver, even the lungs held the most tender parts of human emotions. And that explains why joyful Paul would use bowels in reference to affection. He says, in effect, as I share with you my feelings, I open my whole inner being to you and tell you that the level of my affection is deep and tender. When Paul was with those he loved, he went to the warmest depths in conversation and affection. And such depth of communication, which Paul seems to have practiced on a regular basis, brings a satisfaction and joy like few things on earth. All deep and authentic friendships, especially the union of those who are married, must be based on absolute openness and honesty. Among close friends or between partners in marriage, there will come from time to time a complete emotional and personal communion. Are you being blessed? <laughs> I just think the word is stunning. And when we are free to express our feelings this deeply, we have little difficulty offering in prayers that are offering up prayers that are meaningful and specific, which is precisely what Paul mentions next. He names two things that are of equal importance abounding love and keen discernment. And in verse 9, he says, I pray that your love may abound. And in verse 10, he says, I pray that you may approve things that are excellent. 
to begin with. Love, abounding love, needs to flow freely, somewhat like a river. But then that river must be kept within its banks or it swells and overflows. And if you've ever been in a region that has been flooded, you know the calamity floodwaters can create, and we've seen so much of it on TV. When love flows indiscriminately, we love everything, even the wrong things. And Paul said it well. It is knowledge, real knowledge and discernment, keen, acute discernment that keeps love within its banks. And he concludes this opening paragraph on a high note when he writes of Philippians 1 verse 11. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We realize how much he loved those folks at Philippi when we read words like this. When was the last time you wrote somebody and mentioned what you were praying for on their behalf? Just a thought. This is a practical application now. We begin to have joy again when we rest our full confidence in God. More specifically, according to what we have just read in Philippians 1. Confidence brings joy when we fix our attention on things for which we are thankful. I thank my God. Confidence brings joy when we let God be God. Confidence brings joy when we keep our love within proper limits. I don't know, I think we've covered some important territory here. And as we think about the practical side of all this, it occurs to us that joy is ours to claim. And in fact, no one on earth can invade and redirect our life of joy unless we permit them to do so. I'd like to quote Hudson Taylor, a major missionary in China years back, and he put it like this. He says this, It doesn't matter really how great the pressure is. It only matters where the pressure lies. See that it never comes between you and the Lord. Then, the greater the pressure, the more it presses you to his breast. The pressure on you may be intense. A half dozen joy stealers may be waiting outside your door ready to pounce at the first opportunity. However, Nothing can rob you of your hold on grace, your claim to peace, or your confidence in God without your permission. Choose joy. Never release your grip. I've lived some time now and been in the ministry 32 years, and I'm more convinced than ever that the single most important choice a follower of Christ can make is his or her choice of attitude. Only you can determine that. So, choose wisely, choose carefully, choose confidently. I want to close by quoting a poem I paraphrased a little earlier on, and it's by Ella Wheeler Wilcox, and it's titled The Winds of Fate. One ship drives east and another drives west with the same self-same winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales which tells the way to go. 
Like the winds of the sea are the ways of fate as we voyage along through life. Tis the set of a soul that decides its goal and not the calm or the strife. My advice? Set your sails for joy. You will never regret it. I'd just like to embroider on the meaning of peace, and it's this. It spells total well-being. It spells wholeness, the directed, vibrating health of an individual or a society that pulses with divinely directed purpose and surges with transforming love. It means prosperity. It means completeness. It means joy. Peace means undisturbed, untroubled well-being or composure. It means stability. It's security. Isn't that awesome? That's wonderful stuff. So, um, I'd like just to take the opportunity to bless you and, of course, myself, by praying the ironic blessing from number 624 through to 27. So if you don't mind, would you stand? Thank you. And let's just be quiet before the Lord, because he says this when you pronounce his name over yourself or people. He, he promises to bless you. And this is the blessing. The Lord bless you and watch God and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon and enlighten you and be gracious, kind, merciful and giving favor to you. The Lord lift, lift up his approving countenance upon you and give you peace, tranquility of heart and life continually. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.